So now the great exchange happens. All the extroverts' comments, where did greet one another go? It's come back. Now the introverts will write the pastor, take that away. And the battle begins. I just want you to know, I am driven and moved by gifts. And so, uh, introverts, it's your turn now. Uh, to give to your pastor. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to have you with us this morning. My name is Tim Bidall, and I have the great, great honor and privilege to serve as lead pastor here, and even a greater honor to lead you in God's Word this morning. We're in a series that we've entitled simply the Gospel of John, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, John the Apostle, one of the closest associates of Jesus, writes this Gospel first so that we can meet Jesus Then he writes about the miracles and the messages of Jesus so that we can learn from Jesus. And he does all of this, all that he writes in this gospel, so that you and I will believe and trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And give him everything that concerns us, consumes us, challenges us, including our temptation with sin and our need for Jesus to be a part of our lives and to trust him with that. And we come to John 17. And as we have watched the scriptures come to life each week in the scripture video, we come to John 17. And some context to John 17, if you haven't been with us, we are at the time of Jesus' life, moments before the Roman soldiers are going to come and arrest Jesus. And upon the arrest, they are going to put Jesus on trial. Jesus is going to be beaten, mocked, and and uh, be abused in all kinds of physical ways. And then he is going to be led to a cross where he is, his life is going to be taken away through crucifixion. We are just a matter of hours from Jesus breathing his last breath and giving his spirit to the Father in heaven. We're a matter of days from Jesus gloriously and victoriously rising from the grave. And so these words and these moments are incredibly important. They are the final moments that Jesus would have. And I want you to recognize a couple of things. In these last moments of Jesus' life here on earth, he doesn't preach to the masses. He doesn't perform miracles. He doesn't uh, involve himself in debates and discussions with the religious leaders of his day. He dedicates his time, as many of us probably would in our final moments of life, with those closest to us, wanting to share words of encouragement and equipping for life without him. And so he has spent a lot of time talking to his disciples and telling them that while life without him will be difficult, he gives in the end of John 16, verse 33, this great hope. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Meaning, whatever comes his way... I'm sorry, whatever comes our way, we don't have to fear. We don't have to be filled with dismay because Jesus has already conquered it. And so this morning what we do is we come to now what is the last recorded passages of Scripture before Jesus' arrest. And Jesus now has done what I think should be our model. Yes, spend lots of time with family and friends in our last moments on this earth, but Jesus also dedicates time to spend with his Father in prayer. What we have in John 17 is the longest prayer recorded by Jesus in all of the Scriptures. In fact, I would like to coin this prayer the real Lord's Prayer. Now, we have the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples uh, of Jesus say, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
And Jesus gives them a pattern of prayer that starts with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we coin that prayer the Lord's Prayer. Well, one of the difficulties is, is the Lord couldn't pray that entire prayer. Have you ever thought about that? Because within the Lord's Prayer is something that would have been totally out of character for Jesus. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses or our sins as we forgive those who have debts or trespasses or sins against us. The perfect Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, could never pray that prayer. And yet what we have here is a real living prayer that He lifts up to our Father in heaven. So Matthew chapter 6 is our prayer to our Lord. This prayer is the prayer of our Lord to his Father in heaven. And we can glean much from it. In fact, we're going to spend the next three Sundays in this chapter on this prayer. And we want to see what is in the heart and mind of Jesus and what is so important to him that he would bring it to his Father in heaven. This morning, we're going to look at the first five verses. And in those first five verses, I want to highlight one word. And that one word is given five times. Not only is it given five times in our text, but this is one of John's favorite words that he records about Jesus. That word is recorded 40 different times in the entirety of the Gospel of John. That word that I want to focus in on today is glory. Now, as a dad, my kids have come to say that that's one of my favorite words. Anytime something spectacular happens, something awe-inspiring, dad will say in the most daddish of voices, glory. And so they always say, dad, is it a glory moment? In fact, not too long ago, they gifted me with a shirt. They gave it to a bunch of my buddies and to my kids. They gave, and it says, glory, Timbidal. Okay? I wore that shirt, and a guy said, who's Timbidal and what's about his glory? I says, well, I'm Timbidal. And he goes, aren't you a little old to be wearing a shirt with your own words on it? So I stopped wearing the shirt. But you can buy the shirt. You see, I like that word glory, and I use that word often because there are moments, places... And even, yes, people, when speaking of Jesus, that should take our breath away. Moments that are so amazing. Jesus says, I want glory. Now, for any of us to say that is self-aggrandizing. For any of us to say that is arrogance. But for Jesus to say it, it's appropriate. Jesus, the Son of God, should receive all the glory. The perfect God-man should receive all the praise. And He is hungry, He's desirous of the glory that is due His name, the Scripture says. And He asks of the Father, Father, glorify me, let me receive the glory. Now why would He ask that? Because in John 1, John tells us that even though Jesus came as illustrious as he was, as incomparable as he is, the world did not receive him. In John 1.14 we are told, we beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only. But right before that it says, when he came to even his own people, the world that he created did not receive him. You know, in this world, it is quite often that we don't give value to the things that are valuable. 
In fact, many times we consign the valuable things of the world to the trash bin. I saw this uh, as I was reading uh, the Smithsonian uh, that had this article, and it said this, a Connecticut mechanic found artwork worth millions in a dumpster. So this guy goes to a barn sale, and as he's looking for boxes to collect things, he finds these pieces of art. And he doesn't know what they are. They're kind of just messy pieces of paper with color on them. And he had no kind of expertise in art. But he thought that they were kind of creative. And he was creating this new shop uh, that he was going to be uh, having hobbies and things. And he's like, this would be good art just to put on there, just to cover wall space. And he put them, dozens of them, all throughout this new shop he was he was building. And one day a man came and he says, are you an art dealer? Are you an art collector? And he says, no, not at all. He says, I don't even know what these things are. I I just put them up for mere decorations. He goes, do you not know these are abstract paintings of a famous painter? These things got to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, the guy was wrong. They weren't worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were worth tens of millions of dollars. Something so valuable consigned to the trash heap. People didn't recognize It's glory. And someone had to come and reflect and reveal the glory that it was due. Jesus came, listen to me friends, Jesus came as the glorious one. And as we just sang, we are and were to behold him. And what the world did is the world took Jesus and we threw him away. And even worse than that, we made sure we would never see Jesus again by hanging him on the cross. Thinking we had killed him. But we know on that third and glorious day, Jesus would rise from the grave. And now Jesus says, listen, I want glory. The difference between people in this world hinges on this. Either you will give Jesus the glory he deserves, or you won't. That's what makes people different in this world. Nothing else. There's no other distinguisher of humanity. You either praise and give Jesus the glory he is due, or you render him something less than the all-perfect God and Messiah. And anything less, I want you to know, anything less, you could say he's a great statesman, a wonderful teacher, a a great uh, leader. You can use all of those superlatives, but anything less than Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Son of God, is to render Jesus as garbage. And so this morning, you have to ask the question, am I living in a state where my entire being is to give Jesus glory that's what Jesus wants and that's what he desires and and what we are given in these first five verses of this prayer is why Jesus deserves our glory let's look at three of them this morning number one now by the way we could spend a lot of time on Jesus's glory In fact, when we studied the book of Colossians some years ago, probably five years ago, we studied seven superlatives of Jesus. He is the preeminent one. And then uh, just a year or so ago, we preached through the book of Hebrews, and we titled that sermon aptly, Jesus, the greatest of all time, giving Jesus the glory. 
And so I could spend weeks, years, my lifetime on the glory of Christ. But I want to sit in John 17 and recognize that there are three reasons why today we should give Jesus glory. Number one, we should give him glory because no one and or nothing could sabotage his plan. No one, or you could put in nothing, could sabotage his plan. Notice in the text, Jesus begins the prayer with this phrase. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Let's stop there. Now we would blow right through that unless we recognize that Jesus has said something like that earlier. And so what John is recording is a timestamp of Jesus that something is about to happen. What Jesus is saying is my passion is about to take place. My redemption through the cross of Calvary is at hand. Now what we need to recognize is, is that this is a change in the Gospel of John from what Jesus has recorded before. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to follow with me through the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 2 this morning. John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is attending a wedding reception. Jesus' disciples are there. Jesus' mother Mary is there. And many of us know the story. Uh, wine is, has run out at the wedding reception. And Mary's, I'm sorry, Jesus' mother Mary, who must have been a close relative or friend, and maybe it might have even been that she was the uh, host of the party, she comes to Jesus saying, we've got a problem. And because you're the Son of God, you could reveal some of your glory by performing a miracle, by fixing this problem. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in John chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, And Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So what we got in John 17 is different than John chapter 2. I want you to go to John chapter 7 for a moment. John 7. And in John 7, Jesus is with his family. And his family is about to head to Jerusalem to go to a festival. And Jesus' brothers say, are you going to the festival with us? And Jesus says this in John chapter 7 starting in verse 6. He says this to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Go down to verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So it's not that his time will never come. It just hasn't gotten here yet. Go down to verse 20. In verse 20 it says the following. Uh, I'm sorry, not 20. Verse 30. Verse 30. John 7 verse 30. So Jesus then makes his way at a later time to the festival and who are there? The Pharisees. And they want to arrest him so that they can lay hands on him. Notice verse 30. So they were there seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Go to chapter 8 for a moment. John 8 verse 20. In John 8, 20, Jesus is at now another festival in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And John says this, These words that Jesus spoke were in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested them, even though he, they wanted to arrest Jesus, because his hour 
had not yet come. One more passage, turn to John 16 for a moment, right before the passage we're in this morning. John 16, in verse 25, Jesus says this to his disciples. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour or the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now in John 17, we've gone from the time not yet come to the time that is coming to the time now has come. Now, what are we to do with all of that? There are two impressive truths that we garner from that passage of Scripture. And it is this truth. The life and plans of Jesus Christ, listen to me very carefully, were never in peril at any point. What I mean by that is though the world conspired, though the world planned, though the world sought to bring harm and to end Jesus and to do so even prematurely, Jesus was never in a place of danger. In fact, even his crucifixion in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost says that the crucifixion of Jesus itself was a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus did not get arrested. Jesus gave himself up. At no point did anyone outsmart Jesus, outwork Jesus, outthink Jesus, trick Jesus, fool Jesus, take Jesus by surprise. Jesus was living out step by step, moment by moment, iota by iota, the definite plans of God. And at no point could the world... Could circumstances, could happenstance, could the devil and his demons do anything to sabotage, thwart, or stop that plan from coming to fruition? Now, that should cause us praise. Because we should sit there and say, that is not true in my life. I can be outdone. I can be outsmarted. I can be out, uh, tricked out of, uh, of what I want to do. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so there is a lot of question marks in my life. Listen to me. There were never question marks in Jesus' life, only exclamation points. And so Jesus is living day by day, moment by moment, step by step, living according to the plan that he and the other persons of the Trinity worked up together before the foundations of the world. And just at the right time, the book of Galatians says, that plan is coming to fruition. It should lead us in a world where there are a lot of question marks in our lives to praise the one who's got it all figured out. Amen? But it also doesn't just lead us to praise, but it should give us peace. Because what is true of Jesus... That Jesus was living out the plan that he knew at, knew at just the right time when he was going to be arrested. He knew when his life was going to come to an end. I want you to envision the sands of an hourglass. Not one speck of sand was left and Jesus knew it in the top part of the hourglass when his time had come. He says the sand's all in the bottom. 
And I knew it, and I've been ready for this, and I've prepared myself for this, and it is happening just according to plan. Now, let's put ourselves in this. We who are afraid of the future, we who are worried about circumstances, we who are deeply anguished and anxious about the unknown, we don't know when our hour has come. We don't know when our time has come. We don't know. And that brings great fear into our lives. And so what we need to do is not rest in our own thinking, in our own strength, in our own abilities, but to rest in the one who has the plan. Now, we know from this passage that there's a time frame that Jesus is living by. The question is, Does God have that same time frame and plan for us? A lot of you have on your fireplace or on your wall in calligraphy or in some sort of picture, Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for Jesus, says the Lord, right? No, see, you already blew it. For I know the plans I have. He had plans for Jesus. But just in the same way, God says to us, I have plans for you. And if God's plans for Jesus can't be thwarted, grab a hold of this, my friends, then God's plans for you can't be thwarted either. Okay? So whatever you're worrying about, whatever you're anxious about, whatever you're concerned about, whatever you don't know about, I want you to know God's got a plan for you. And I want you to know, you say, but wait a minute, bad things are happening to me. God knows it. And not only does God not just know it, but God has given whatever happens to us a level of approval. Go to the book of Job. Job, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the devil goes to God. He wants to wreak havoc in Job's life. And he goes to God and he says, I need permission to touch Job. I need permission to hurt Job. I need permission to give Job trials and tribulations. And God says, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, but you can't do that, 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 and that. And when I say it's over, it's over. What I want you to know, my friends, is there's not a trial, there's not a moment in God's plan for you that God sits there and goes, oh my goodness, I don't know, what's Tim going to do? Is Tim going to make it through this? We would have no worry in our lives if that theology would, like a coffee, begin to brew within us, right? If we were to allow that to cascade into our lives, then whatever happens, you say, God, you okayed it. And God, you said you're going to use it for great things and you are going to make me better as a result of it. So while it's difficult, while it's hard, you say it's going to be light and momentary in light of what you've got for me in the future. And so I'm willing to endure trials with joy in my heart because I know you've placed it there You've got your hand on the thermostat, so it's not going to get any hotter or harder than it, than it, than it will be. And so I can have trust that my greatest fears and concerns, that you've got a plan. And that nobody can sabotage it. 
This is what we mean when we speak of the providence of God. God is in control. I like what C.H. Spurgeon, the English preacher of about 150 years ago, says when he says this. The providence of God is the great protector of our life and usefulness. And under the divine care, we are perfectly, listen to what he says, safe from danger. We have nothing to worry about. We are in the hands of God. Therefore, C.H. Spurgeon says this with regards to the providence of God. So when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. You and I should sleep like babies. Because we have a God who says, I've got a plan. And no one can sabotage or thwart the plans that I have for you. We need to recognize that. Now, how can he do this? Notice Jesus goes on and he says, the reason why is because, verse 2, you have given me authority over all flesh. Authority. That means there's nothing. That means Jesus has authority over this world, over circumstances, over temptation, over the devil and the demons, over everything. That's why I like what the Dutch uh, reformer Abraham Kuyper says when he says this, there is not one inch of all of creation of which Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Your temptations belong to Jesus. Your trials belong to Jesus. Your tribulations belong to Jesus. Jesus says, I have authority over them. Sadly, we live as if those things have authority over us. And Jesus says, the reason why I deserve glory is because I am in charge. He receives glory for that. A couple weeks ago, a family was leaving the church and I had seen on social media that they had been on a recent vacation. So I was asking the kids, how was vacation? And the kids said, it was good, it was good. And I went to the dad and I said, hey, dad, did you enjoy vacation? And the son said, of course he did. He planned it. Which tells me that we did some dad things on the vacation. Jesus enjoys The glory of planning everything that happens, my friends, in this world. And seeing it come out just as he planned. And that should give us great peace. Why should we give Jesus glory? Because no one can sabotage his plan. Well, what was his plan? Of saving his people. Of saving his people. John 17 Since you have given me authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they will know that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you, he said. I glorified the Father on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let's stop there. Jesus receives glory not just because no one can touch his plan, but he did something. And what did he do? Notice the phrase, he accomplished the work. He accomplished the work. That word accomplished is a word that we're going to see in John 18. We're going to see it in its Aramaic rendering. Telestai. 
Telestai is Aramaic, meaning finished, completed, accomplished. Jesus will cry this from the cross when he says, it is finished. Wait a minute. He says in John 17, before his arrest, before the trial, before the beatings, before the carrying of the cross to Calvary, before the nails in his hands and his feet, before the spear in his side, the crown of thorns on his head, before all of that, Jesus says, it's already accomplished. Do you see the confidence of Jesus? He's fully confident that what has been planned is going to be done. Why? Because no one can sabotage that plan. And so we have this work that is being completed or accomplished. Two things I want you to maybe write these down. This might be helpful for you. What Jesus is saying here, that he has accomplished this work, is that he garnered our salvation. He garnered our salvation. That is, he earned it. When we talk about him accomplishing, that is, he garnered, he grabbed a hold of our salvation, and the way he did it was he earned it. He earned it through a work. He accomplished the work. Now, what that means is that Jesus did all of the work that we couldn't do on our own. Jesus died the death we couldn't die. Jesus paid for the sins that we couldn't pay for. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not do. Jesus worked. He was a man at work from the moment he came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. And he says, I have finished the work. So he's the one who garners it. He's the one who's earned it. Therefore, he receives the glory for salvation. When we tell our testimonies to all the glory goes to Jesus, he did it all. Now notice what Jesus does. Once he garners salvation for us, he gives salvation because we can't earn it. There's nothing you and I can do to accomplish the work that Jesus has. So he has done all of the work. And the only thing we need to do is to receive it. Notice, he gives to those who believe in the one true God, in Jesus Christ, his son. He gives them eternal life. So Jesus does all the work, all the earning, all the accomplishing, and we receive. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, puts it this way when he says the following. Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are our healings. Christ's agonies are our repose. Christ's conflicts are our conquest. His groans are our songs. His pains are our ease. His shame is our glory. His death is our life. His sufferings are salvation. He did all the work. We get to receive all the benefits and blessings. Amen? So, if you're here this morning and you are trying to figure out how do I get Jesus, the answer is not through good works or hard work. The way to receiving Jesus is just that, saying yes to Jesus and the finished work that he accomplished on the cross and the victory he had when the tomb was robbed of his body, when he was raised and brought back to life. 
And then, and only then, can we experience all of these things. Now, I want you to notice something. This salvation, notice that, that Jesus says something to the Father that is important. Jesus has, verse 2, authority over all flesh. He gives eternal life to all whom you, speaking to the Father, have given him. What Jesus is saying is, you gave me people, and I'm giving you back to them redeemed. What is being said here is the doctrine that our salvation doesn't begin when we say yes to Jesus, but that your salvation was in the mind and heart of God before the foundations of the world. You too were a part of that plan. Now, right away, some of you maybe who are more apt in things of theology will say, wait a minute, you're talking about God's sovereignty and there's free will. And and I will simply say this, we can have lots of discussions about it afterwards, but with this, they are shown as friends. And what we need to know and what we need to recognize within this is that God had you on his heart and mind Before the foundations of this world, Jesus had you on his heart and mind when he went to the cross. The Holy Spirit had you in his heart and mind as he indwelt you. That means, listen to me, your salvation was never in question. And you say, well, okay, but wait a minute. What does that do for me? What that does for me is a reminder that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That means you and I are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That means we are secure in the grasp and the hand and the palm of our Heavenly Father because Jesus says earlier in John, I've not lost a single one, Father, that you've given me. You'll never be lost. You'll never be cast aside. You'll never be thrown away. Jesus deserves glory because no one can sabotage His plan of saving his people and sharing with them the ultimate prize. In verses 2 and 3, notice, what is the ultimate prize in this life? The ultimate prize is shared twice in our text. That he might give them eternal life. And then notice that this eternal life in verse 3 is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The greatest thing in this world that we can ever receive from anyone is eternal life. Now right away, we hear eternal life and our mind goes to one of the two definitions of eternal life. So right away what we do is this. We hear eternal life and we think this way. Write this down. We think of quantity of time. And when we see eternal added to time, we speak of forever time. Okay, so we think of everlasting life for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting forever life. The problem with that is if that's where eternal life ends, we've got a problem because Let us recognize that all humanity, not Christians alone, will live eternally. Right? We've got to understand the Bible clearly says that our lives and our resurrected bodies, both the evil and the saved, will go on for all eternity. 
And so there's got to be a second definition to it. And when Jesus speaks of eternal, he doesn't speak of quantity of time, forever time. He also speaks of quality of life flourishing. That's the difference. We experience eternal life, which is not only eternal like the unbelievers, but it is a flourishing life. Jesus says in John 10.10, I come to give you life and to give it to you in all abundance. God wants to give you the victorious life, the, uh, the overcoming life, the abundant life through Jesus Christ. Now you say, I'm not experiencing that life. Well, it's not Jesus' fault. If you're not experiencing flourishing in your life, don't shake your fist at Jesus and say, you falsely advertise. You want the abundant life? Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And there you will bear much fruit. That's the flourishing. And so, we need to ask the question this morning, what's keeping me from flourishing in this life, Jesus says, what keeps us from flourishing in this life is when we don't give the glory that is due Jesus' name. One pastor put it this way, Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. How satisfied are you today in what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in your life? You see, we're not giving. We're like that. Whoever that guy was, I'm assuming it was a guy, that threw away all that artwork in the dumpster, little knowing that he was throwing away the greatest treasure that his hands would ever touch. And we are reminded that we have been given in Christ a treasure, even though we are jars of clay. And so what do we do? Let me close, and I know my time is up. Let me close with three things that we need to do. In light of this first, we need to lift Jesus high in praise. I want to share with you a couple quotes. The first quote comes from John Piper, and he says this. This assumes that the glory of Christ is our highest treasure, not health, wealth, family, or even life. So our preaching must continually show that Jesus isn't the means to prosperity, but that Jesus himself is better than prosperity. When we praise Jesus, listen to me, what we are doing, what we are saying, is Jesus in our lives is the greatest. There's nothing on the field of play that is better. There's nothing in the theater that we watch that is better. There is nothing in this world that captivates us more than knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he sent. And if you are captivated by what your team does, or captivated by what the actors do on the screen, or captivated by what your spouse does, or what your children do, if anything like that is captivating you more than Christ, then you are not flourishing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why Brennan Manning puts it this way when he says, 
The Christ within who is our hope of glory is not a matter of theological debate, philosophical speculation. He is not a hobby, a part-time project, a good theme for a book, or a last resort when all human effort fails. He is our life. Jesus is the most real fact about us. He is the power and wisdom of God dwelling within us. So let me ask you, are you giving Jesus the glory that is due his name? Number two, you give glory to Jesus by leaning on him in your work, in your walk. What are you struggling with? When you say this, Jesus, I am lost without you. Jesus, I don't know where to go. Jesus, I don't know what to do. Listen, parents, is there not a greater moment in your life than when your children come to you and say, can you help me? It gives us glory. They're turning to us. They see us as valuable, as wise. We likewise do that to Jesus. When we say, Jesus, apart from you, I can't do this. So lead me, guide me, walk with me, lead me to where I need to go. Some of us need to stop fighting our own battles and start letting Jesus do the fighting and in doing so we give him great glory. Finally, we need to let others know about Jesus' glory through our witness. The reason why we evangelize is we have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the best. He is the greatest. He is the thing that... Uh, we will spend our entire lives praising and then we'll need 10,000 years to continue to do it only to have scratched the surface. And what we are called then to do is not to keep that to ourselves, but to share that with everyone and anyone who we come in contact with. So you want to res- you want to give Jesus the glory to his name? Let people know about it. Let people know that he is the greatest and proclaim that with all of your life. Jesus wants glory. Is he going to get it from you and me is the question. Let this week be a week that we give glory to our God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we now ask, Lord, that you would take what we've heard and allow it to be put into action. Lord, I pray that in all that we say and do that we will give you glory. That it would begin in your house, in your church, with your people. That we in one voice would declare glory to God forever. But Lord, that it would go beyond your house and your people. And would be extended to the needy and lost world around us. Who needs to see your glory displayed in us. And declared through our words. So give us the strength and the ability to do that so that we may glorify you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray.